Well, I want us to consider together tonight another apostolic um, note, and it's the uh, small book of Jude. And so if you would turn there, and we'll um, make our way through this interesting um, book tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word again tonight, we recognize that without the touch of your spirit, that special anointing of the Holy Spirit, your word will not feed us. And so I ask that you would come and place your hand on us, that you would grace these moments that we spend around your word and use it to benefit us, to enrich our faith, to um, help us understand what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus. So we commit this time and your word into your hands. Use it now in Christ's name. Amen. Jude identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Now, James most likely is the leader of the Jerusalem church, and he's also the half-brother of Jesus. And so this means that Jude was also a half-brother of Jesus. However, it's interesting, and maybe it's not um, unreasonable to, to know that uh, Jude and his brothers, they didn't come to faith immediately. They weren't followers of Christ, um, and uh, particularly until after Christ's resurrection. Uh, John wrote something, just a very quick and an interesting little line in John chapter 7, verse 5. He writes, not even his brothers believed in him. In fact, Mark's gospel, Mark says that they thought Jesus was mad. I wonder if that's uh, maybe a typical kind of response uh, from family members so close and uh, so, so intimately involved in Jesus' life and now are confronted with this amazing um, confession or, or uh, this amazing understanding that uh, Jesus is God come in the flesh. I'm sure it would be difficult for a brother, for a sibling to really embrace that. But they came to faith eventually. They come to a place where they're following Christ. Now the tone, the tone of the book is one of warning. It's one of correction. And some very encouraging um, words of instruction. He helps us at the end of the book to understand what is absolutely necessary for a perseverant, faithful life. And so there's warning here in the book that we'll see early on. And then at the very closing portions of the book, there's some wonderful, helpful instruction given to us. So let's read through the book, read the letter. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, 
to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although it is very, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains uh, under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, uh, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the uh, sake of, of gain to, to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs as at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict, convict uh, all the ungodliness of their uh, deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, 
They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last Last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with, a, with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Wonderful note purpose of the letter, um, what it was written for, is clearly stated in verses 4, 3, and 4. Look at that again. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude, uh, it appears that Jude really wanted to give them instruction, some encouragement um, in the faith that he wanted to write to them about this gracious salvation that had been provided for them in Christ. He had greater interest in communicating uh, theological and, and doctrinal truths to them than warning them against false teachers and against wrong teaching. Uh, Jude, he just delighted in the gospel, and he had a desire to, uh, to encourage uh, the church in the faith. But the warnings were more urgently needed at this point. Uh, he felt compelled to expose these individuals, certain individuals who had come into the life of the church, and he, they're disrupting the peace and the unity and the, the love that was shared among members of the church. Um, they were what he called ungodly people. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God and who had crept into the church unnoticed. There's something insidious about this, but not necessarily 
uncommon. Very often, those who want to undermine the gospel, those who desire to weaken the church's prophetic uh, voice and its witness, will do it in very subtle ways. And yet these ways are persuasive. In this case, they were denying Christ in some crucial, crucial ways. Not clearly indicated here. Perhaps calling uh, into question the divine and human natures of, of Christ. Perhaps they were undermining his lordship over the whole of life. Uh, teaching that God's grace actually uh, accommodates uh, human sinfulness. Apparently there were some people that felt that the grace of God allowed them to continue in sinful behaviors. Very similar to what Paul writes to the church in Rome in chapter 6, where there were some perverting the grace of God. They were twisting the grace of God. Well, the language here is is quite strong. In verse 4, who pervert, who twist the grace of our God into sensuality. It's a rather strong indictment. The glorious, the rich, the wonderful grace of God that extends salvation and forgiveness to us to distort and um, pervert the grace to say that that grace that saves and changes and transforms life actually accommodates and encourages us to sin. That's a perversion. That is um, a way of coming in and distorting the gospel and uh, destroying really having a negative, hurtful impact on the believer's life. So, in light of these challenges, Jude's appealing to them to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What's being emphasized here is that Christian faith is distinguished by the content of the gospel. It's to be understood as a a body of teaching that's grounded in divine revelation. And it's fixed. It's not fluid. It's been once for all. Notice that the strength of it, the once for all time, for all time given to the saints. So scriptures to be understood as being apostolic in origin and closed. It's not a living document. It's not open to to additions or to revisions. To do that whenever we choose or whenever we feel inspired to do so. Judah's saying it's, it's once for all delivered to the saints. It's to be defended, it's to be preserved, and it's to be passed on to the next generation intact 
untampered with. Well, what we have in in verses 5 through 16 is a description of these false teachers in terms of their nature and their end. The nature of these false teachers is captured in the analogies and the the metaphors Jude, Jude uses to describe them. Notice in verse 11 that he likens them to Cain and Balaam and Korah. Now these are characters from the Old Testament that that stand out in our minds. Um, Cain, you remember, engaged in self-centered act of worship. He brought an offering of the fruit of the ground but not the first fruits of the harvest as God required. He, uh, his disobedience, his disobedience and worship exposed his willfulness and his, his faithless, faithlessness. Balaam, the story of Balaam is a rather dramatic one in Numbers 22. Um, he's a pagan prophet and he used his gift for personal gain. And because of his greed, he allows himself to be uh, bought by Balak, the king of Moab. And he's attempting to, in the story, he's attempting to curse Israel. He's unsuccessful. No matter where he's positioned around the camp of, of Israel, Rather than cursing, all he can do is bless them. But it was uh, all in an effort to, to just get more money. Greed motivated him. These teachers that are creeping into the church are motivated the same way. Korah, number 16. Korah is the classic example of rebelliousness. He led an uprising against Moses and Aaron, challenged their divinely given authority. It ended in a dramatic judgment event with Korah and those with him being swallowed up by the earth. The earth opened and they fell in. It's just an unbelievably dramatic moment after leading the uprising. So, these false teachers were were willful, they were disobedient, faithless, greedy, and rebellious. There's nothing in their character. There's absolutely nothing in their motivations that commend them as being men of Christian integrity. The metaphors are quite strong. They they give images. Um, Instead of being sincere, genuine believers, and Jude says, they're hidden reefs. They're shepherds feeding themselves. They're waterless clouds. They're fruitless trees, wild waves, and wandering stars. And everywhere they go, they sow 
discontent. Let's look again at verse 16. Verses 16 and 19. Verse 16, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. And verse 19, it is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. This is the nature of these individuals. And it's very interesting. And perhaps it's one of the more disturbing aspects of church life is that we do see people of that, this nature come into the life of the church and be disruptive and uh, create divisions and problems within the life of the church. And Jude is warning against them. He sees them active in the life of Christian community. These aren't the kind of people you want in your church. You don't want them teaching and influencing your people. And yet, Jude reminds us that their influence, as appealing, as disruptive as it can be, is shallow and it's short-lived because it's shaped and driven by unbelief and sensuality. Their ultimate end is disastrous. Verses 5 through 7. This is a sobering section and one that I think we need to think about very carefully. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sensual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. It's almost impossible for us to conceptualize this, the kind of horrific judgment that comes to those who are uh, faithless, rebellious, uh, turning their backs on the gospel, wanting nothing to do with Christ. The end is not good, and we need to be reminded periodically of this, that um, there are thousands, and it just, it just overwhelms me from time to time, thousands of people just lost that this is their end. How we'd like to turn our, our minds away from this, this particular understanding, but it's grounded in biblical truth. Divine judgment is all that their future holds. But for those of us 
those who are, are faithful to Christ, those who are holding tightly to Jesus, those who have embraced the gospel, our future is dramatically different. We're being sustained by the mercy and the grace of Christ, which ultimately leads to the full expression of eternal life. See that in verse 21. Now, given the fact that every generation of Christians will be confronted with false teachers, there's a, there's a common strategy that's to be followed that will contribute positively to perseverance and faith. How do we persevere? What is it that we should do in terms of, of habits and uh, discipling, discipleship disciplines that will sustain and carry us along and deepen our love for Christ and uh, stabilize our walk with Him and our commitment to Him? Well, it's found in verses 17 through 23. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last days there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. There are three, three prominent elements uh, that make up this strategy of perseverance. First, we're to build ourselves up in the most holy faith. And we, we do this by becoming biblically literate, theolo theologically informed. Now, this doesn't mean that we uh, need to become highly trained theologians. There are a few of those. We admire them. We uh, certainly respect uh, their giftedness. But that's not what we necessarily have to become. But every one of us in this room tonight, as believers, we're expected to be conversant with the essential understandings of the Christian faith. To have a basic grasp of doctrine, of the instruction that we receive in God's word. Oh, that God would create in all of us a, a, just a love for his word, a desire and affection to grow in his word, to read his word, to um, want to sit under the instruction of God's word. In fact, this is sort of an aside, but um, 
One of the indicators, I think, of genuine conversion is a, an, an appetite and a, a desire to read and understand Scripture. I don't know about you folks, but it certainly was true of my experience. Um, I really had no interest in the Bible, even though I was in church all the time. It just didn't, it didn't speak to me. But after I had this real genuine conversion experience, I can remember um, going to my room and I was starting to read the Bible and come to sections. There were certainly large sections of the Bible I, I didn't understand at all. But then I'd come across in a text, I'd come across a word, a, a verse or a paragraph, and it would just touch me. And you'd just begin to weep. It finally fed my soul. It's one of those indicators that you're genuinely born again is you have a great love for the Word. And the Word begins to open to you section by section. And one truth is built on another truth. And you find yourself having a greater understanding as well as a greater affection for the things of God. So becoming biblically informed is a, an important element of perseverance. Second, we're to engage in prayer. Prayer that's uh, directed, prayer that's empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is praying within the perimeters set by the will and word of God. Or as, as James warns, you ask and do not receive because, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Not praying within the boundaries of God's will and God's word. But prayer becomes an important part of our lives. I think what we're, we're to develop is a, dispensa- a disposition of prayerfulness. Praying people. I wonder, do you ever find yourself just in the course of the day, just breathing a prayer, just stopping, or just as you go about your work, just a, a line of prayer. Thank you, Lord for all that you've done for me. Prayer becomes like, like our breath, the breath of the soul. So we begin to just become a prayerful people. It's that kind of awareness of God's presence, of constant prayer that sustains us and keeps us safe keen awareness that we're living our lives in the presence of God. Third, we're to care for and correct one another. Now this underscores the importance of Christian relationships and I I think it also underscores the importance of church gathering and uh, being in fellowship with other believers. Um, these are relationships that are developed that become uh, deep. They're not superficial. 
but rather there's substantial relationships, substantial enough to support real caring. These are established relationships that allow us to gently counsel one another or to correct one another through confrontation, through some decisive action. I wonder how many of us have at least one or two relationships with other believers where that relationship is strong enough to accommodate this kind of care so that we're free to talk very candidly with one another and and say, I, I think this in your life needs to be looked at. Or we're certainly open and welcoming to someone correcting us as well. I'm sure all of us remember and have maybe even presently, but certainly remember that in the course of our journey, there have been people brought into our lives that we've established a relationship with, and they are able to nurture and correct and confront and help us grow, help us to see things that we don't see. I remember several in my life so far that have played that role, been so crucial in helping me grow and um, develop as a, as a believer. Now, each of, these, um, each of these contributing elements to perseverance help us grow in our faith. They help us maintain Christian integrity. These are the means by which we can maintain our spiritual equilibrium even during difficult and challenging times. So my encouragement to you, and also it's a reminder to me, is to study God's Word and to pray and to care for each other. We're in this together. We need each other desperately in order for us to remain um, perseverant, steadfast, faithful followers of Christ. Let's always be aware, though, that ultimately it's God who sustains us. It's the Lord who sustains us. Look again at the closing doxology here. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. He's able. Ultimately, he's the one who sustains and carries us along. And he uh, is able to present us blameless in the presence of God's glory with great joy. What a day that's going to be. It's a marvelous expectation. It's something that all of us as Christians, we anticipate. Uh, Perhaps as we get older, we become more uh, alert and more expectant. 
when that day is going to come and we're going to be just, we just pass into the presence of Jesus. What a marvelous and a hopeful expectation. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you. We thank you for your call, for your hand that rest, rests upon us. We're your people. We love you. Our desire, Lord, is to be faithful and to be perseverant to the end. We know that you alone, you're the one who ultimately sustains us and carries us along. Keep your hand on our lives. Keep us safe. Give us a greater hunger and desire for your word. May we have this daily uh, awareness of your presence and through the course of the day just um, breathe out a prayer. So, Lord, we commit our lives again to you this evening as we close this special day. Keep your hand on us now and help us throughout the week with all of the challenges, all of the issues that we're going to face, all the demands of daily life. Um, Help us. Help us to be faithful to you in each one of them. All for your glory, in Christ's name, amen.